You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or JIA. Joining me is Dr. Jay Mehta, an attending physician with the Division of Rheumatology and an associate program director of the Pediatrics Residency Program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Mehta. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. This is like like a big career move for me. And like, I feel like my career is complete now <laughs> being on here. Thank you very much for being so kind. Uh, so we're talking, as I mentioned, about JIA, which is a broad term that's used to describe several different forms of chronic arthritis in children. And JIA is the most common rheumatologic disease in children and one of the most frequent chronic diseases of childhood. So we're going to talk today about possible etiologies, keys to making the diagnosis, treatment goals, and potential complications. It's a big list for you, Dr. Mehta, but I know you can do it. (laughs) So let's start with a case example that we see frequently in primary care. So a young child comes in with a limp. What are some of the key elements that I should think of in the history and ask about that would elicit a rheumatologic etiology? Yeah, this is a super common presentation, um, both, you know, primary care and then in our clinic. And generally when someone comes to me with a limp or joint pain, the first question I, I ask is, and I think the most useful question as I start to think about my diagnostic algorithm, is what time of day the symptoms are there. And so thinking about the broad differential for this is inflammatory or mechanical, and then, you know, sometimes other causes like oncologic and things like that. But really asking about the time of day is really helpful. And so for inflammatory causes, so things like juvenile arthritis or other autoimmune diseases, the symptoms tend to be worse first thing in the morning. Like as soon as the patient wakes up, parents will notice a limp or they'll have stiffness. A lot of times kids with arthritis don't necessarily have pain. About 25% of arthritis is painless, but they'll notice symptoms first thing in the morning. And then those tend to get better as the day goes on. So after, you know, half an hour, an hour, maybe a couple hours, sometimes you'll start to see symptoms get better. And so I think that's generally the first thing that I ask about. And and really, I think one of the most useful questions you can ask. I think other things in the history, if they can localize where it comes from, although in kids, you know, especially younger kids, they're not very good at localizing where pain or, or stiffness might be coming from. Asking about any trauma before this, any sort of fall, Although, you know, I have a four-year-old and he falls literally multiple times a minute. And so, like, that's probably <laughs> not necessarily going to be um, as helpful because it's, you know, kids fall all the time. And, but you can certainly ask. And if there was any history of, you know, a preceding mm-hmm. trauma, that can be helpful. If they, you know, as opposed to first thing in the morning, if the pain tends to be later in the day after activity, that points to more of a mechanical cause. If it's nighttime pain, it's a pain that's waking them up in the middle of the night, that's pretty severe, then, you know, we start to think about oncologic causes. Growing pains can be another cause of nighttime pain, um, but those patients tend to be well otherwise, as opposed to, you know, kids with malignancy. Thinking about other symptoms, and so has there been fever, 
that might point towards an infectious etiology or systemic JIA can have fever associated? Has there been some sort of rash, like a psoriatic rash or a rash of systemic JIA? And then symptoms like weight loss or GI symptoms might point to IBD as a underlying cause of arthritis. Those tend to be some of the bigger things that I ask about on history. Mm -hmm. And we're throwing around the word arthritis a lot, but can we actually just define what we mean by arthritis in kids? Yeah, so arthritis is a physical exam finding. And so it's either swelling on exam, so swelling in a joint, or the combination of pain on motion and, and or tenderness to palpation and then limitation of motion. Mm -hmm. So there are some joints like the hip, like the temporomandibular joint of the shoulder where you may not necessarily elicit swelling, but those patients, if they have arthritis, they will have tenderness to palpation and then limitation of motion. And so either one of those. On history, you can get what we call a story of inflammatory type arthralgias. And so coming back to that stiffness or pain first thing in the morning, that gets better as the day goes on. But really arthritis is really a physical exam finding. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll get warmth, although warmth is super subjective. And, and so I don't necessarily rely on that. And it can be pretty subtle. And then one thing that people often ask about is erythema or redness. That you can see with like a septic joint or you can see with like rheumatic fever. With juvenile arthritis, we don't tend to see erythema of the joints. And so it's helpful if it's there. But if it's not there, it doesn't necessarily mean that the patient doesn't have arthritis. Mm -hmm. Also seems like sometimes it's subjective and different in different skin tones. So a little bit harder. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Now, we've talked a lot about history and physical exam, but what role do laboratory tests play in making a diagnosis? It's uh, lab tests aren't that helpful out of the diagnosis. And, and just the other, actually yesterday, I had a patient who I diagnosed with arthritis and the mom very understandably was like, well, but none of the arthritis tests are abnormal. The vast majority of kids with arthritis don't actually have things like rheumatoid factor or other antibodies that we tend to associate with adult-type arthritis. In fact, that was one of the reasons that it used to be called JRA, or juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, but most kids don't actually have positive rheumatoid factors. Kids with arthritis, especially when they're younger, may have positive ANAs. Um, that is not necessarily helpful for diagnosis. It's helpful more for diagnosis of things like lupus and some associated conditions. But if you have a um, JIA patient or a patient you're suspecting with JIA who has a positive ANA, that's actually a prognostic risk factor for the development of asymptomatic uveitis, which is the major comorbidity with JIA. And so in our patients who we, who we diagnose with JIA or suspect have JIA, we'll send ANAs. And if they're positive, then we, we want to make sure that they get to an ophthalmologist because the uveitis or inflammation in the anterior chamber of the eye doesn't necessarily have symptoms and patients only get picked up if they have a slit lamp exam by an ophthalmologist. That's a great teaching pearl for us to remember, especially as you said, it can be asymptomatic. And I think it just, uh, just, uh, just to round out on labs, a lot of kids aren't necessarily inflamed. So sedated CRP, helpful if they're abnormal, but if they're normal, doesn't necessarily rule out arthritis. And in fact, and sometimes in our kids with arthritis, if they do have abnormal sedate and CRP, we'll think more about an underlying IBD or other cause of the arthritis. So since we can't use labs all the time to help us in making a diagnosis, walk us through what the JIA classification criteria are. Yeah, I think important to just mention that, you know, they're called classification criteria, so they're not actually diagnostic criteria, and they were basically developed for research purposes. We tend to use them in diagnosis, but it, these classification criteria really, really developed 
by consensus. And so there's not a single JIA. It's really a group, as you mentioned at the outset, it's a group of chronic arthritis, non-infectious arthritis that affect children. But in terms of the different criteria, really, or the different classifications or subtypes, really what you need to have is arthritis, right? So going back to what I was talking about in terms of that physical exam diagnosis, so seeing swelling or tenderness palpation and limitation of motion. I mean, it has to have been there for more than six weeks to fulfill these criteria. Mm-hmm. So, and again, because these are a group of chronic non-infectious arthritis, that six weeks is really there to make sure to establish that we're, we're in the chronic kind of phase of things. You know, some of the viruses like parvovirus and EBV can cause arthritis, and, and, but those don't tend to last more than a few weeks or so. And so that six-week cutoff is really to make sure that, that we're in the chronic inflammatory phase. JIA mm-hmm. is, you know, it by with the name juvenile is a diagnosis of kids, so less than 16. And then the criteria really differentiate between the types of arthritis by the number of joints involved and then some of the associated features. And so there's oligoarticular, which oligo meaning Latin for few, and so that's four or less joints polyarticular, which is more than you know, five or more joints, and then you divide polyarticular into rheumatoid factor positive, rheumatoid factor negative, rheumatoid factor positive being much more like the adult type RA, rheumatoid arthritis, and those are patients that have some of the worst outcomes in JIA because they tend to look like adult arthritis, adult rheumatoid arthritis. Then there's psoriatic arthritis that, as you might imagine, is arthritis associated with psoriasis, or some of the other features that you sometimes see with psoriasis, like nail pitting or dactylitis, which is swelling of a digit. And then there's enthesitis-related arthritis, which is one of the spondyloarthritis. Spondylo meaning spine. So these are types of arthritis that tend to affect older males. You may kind of word associate that with HLA-B27. And there's an association with sacroiliitis or inflammation of the sacroiliac joints. And then there's systemic JIA, which is often its own category which is a very different type of arthritis. These patients often have very high spiking fevers. They're very sick. They can get something called macrophage activation syndrome where they get cytopenias and a cytokine storm, systemic inflammatory response type picture. When we're putting someone into these categories, we're thinking about what are the joints involved? What's the pattern of joints that are involved? And then what are some of the associated features that these patients have? Thank you. Thanks for walking us through those subtypes of JAA. Now, we know that it's an autoimmune disease, but what are some of the possible genetic and environmental etiologies? Such a great question. Um, and, you know, the, the truth is, is that, you know, I've been a pediatric rheumatologist for about 11 years now, and we're not, I don't really have a better explanation for families when they ask me about that than I did when I started. And we know it's, there's some genetic predispositions, but it's pretty complicated. And like many of our multifactorial diseases, the genetic risk only confers a small percentage of the risk. The one exception to that is the spondyloarthritis or enthesitis-related arthritis. I mentioned the B27. That does confer a significant risk of arthritis. But beyond that, we don't have great genetic risk factors, and, and we're not necessarily doing routine genetic testing our patients. In terms of environmental risk factors, there's some thought that you know, diet can sometimes play a role. It's not, you know, and certainly patients with celiac disease can get arthritis as one of the major comorbidities with celiac disease. Mm-hmm. And we have some patients who aren't necessarily, don't necessarily have celiac disease, but try going gluten-free or the anti-inflammatory diet and get some benefit with that. But I'd say the majority of my patients that try it don't necessarily get significant benefit. 
There was actually an interesting study that came out a few years ago from a former CHOP resident, Dan Horton, who found that the number of antibiotic courses that a child received in the first couple of years of life was associated with the later risk of getting arthritis. And so there may be some association of the microbiome or antibiotic and gut flora with that. But again, it's not, um, these are all associations. We don't, we can't necessarily, you know, talk about causation. So it's really, you know, I think at this point, it's still one of those things where I have to tell a family that, you know, it's really bad luck that I think is the cause. We don't really have better data about than that. Hmm. Well, I love a Dan Horton shout out. He was one of my residency classmates. So I thought he might be. Excited. Yeah. <laughs> excited to hear about his research. So JIA symptoms are chronic, but as you mentioned, may wax and wane and flare. So given that there's not currently a cure, what are the mainstays and goals of treatment? Yeah. So as a, you know, and worth just stating, and, and I think it's probably clear to people listening, but it's an autoimmune disease. And so treatment is immunosuppressive. In the past, people would treat with NSAIDs for this. And NSAIDs are really good at helping with symptoms. They reduce pain. They reduce stiffness. They may even make swelling better, but they don't actually prevent the progression of disease. They don't prevent damage. And we have pretty good data from the era that NSAIDs were being used routinely that patients were getting musculoskeletal complications like leg length discrepancies, muscle atrophy, joint damage. And so our treatment paradigm has really changed to be more aggressive recently because we really do want to preserve growth. We want to preserve function. We want to ensure that these kids essentially live normal lives, which we're able to do for the most part with our conditions. And so if patients have a couple joints involved, we'll often do corticosteroid injections of the joints, which work really well. But if those don't work or they have more joints involved, then we'll go to methotrexate at the outset. You know, parents will often Google methotrexate and see the doses that they're used in oncologic settings. And it's important to note that those doses are an order of magnitude higher than they are, you know, in what we use. And so on the oncology floor, they're using grams, we're using milligrams. And so we don't get those terrible side effects like, you know, horrible nausea and vomiting, mouth ulcers, just being all around miserable with the doses of methotrexate that we do use. Some patients do get some nausea and we can usually prevent that with folic acid. If methotrexate doesn't work, then we go to TNF inhibitors. And if you watch any sort of TV in the evenings, you're familiar with some of these. Um, Embryl, Humira are some of the TNF inhibitors that we use. Lots of commercials for those. And then over the last five or six mm -hmm. years, and one of the most exciting aspects of rheumatology is that even beyond TNF inhibitors, there's lots of biologics that are coming out. Mm -hmm. And those biologics are often tailored to the type of arthritis that a patient has. And so as opposed to a few years ago when it was just methotrexate and TNF inhibitors, we have a lot more options um, nowadays. That's great. You talked a little bit about uveitis as a potential complication. What are some of the other possible complications of an untreated arthritis? Yeah, so in addition to uveitis, which can lead, and just worth saying, it can lead to blindness, and which is one of the reasons that we really stress having these patients sent to ophthalmology. You can get leg length discrepancies. And so... The reason for that is when you have arthritis, you have increased blood flow to an area. And then with that increased blood flow, actually you get more growth factors that go to a, that affected knee. And so actually the affected side gets longer. You can have muscle atrophy. And so the muscles around an affected joint. So sometimes with knee arthritis, we can see thigh atrophy. With ankle arthritis, we can see calf atrophy. And then you can just get joint damage, right? So over time, the joint can actually, um, you can lose the joint space and you get joint space narrowing and then contractures. 
And so you can essentially lose mobility over time. And so back before, you know, we had good medications like methotrexate and and TNF inhibitors, patients would often end up in wheelchairs and lose function. That doesn't really, if a patient gets to us, um, you know, in enough time before joint damage develops, we generally are able to preserve function. And usually when I diagnose a patient with arthritis, I tell the family that my expectation is that they're actually going to have or my goal um, and, 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 you know, hopefully expectation is that they will have a essentially normal life, except for the fact that they have to take medications and come and see me regularly. But, you know, our patients tend to, you know, do all the things that they're supposed to do in school, you know, go and get jobs or go to college, have families do all the things that, that you know, other kids their age are doing. Mm-hmm. That's great. Now, when I see these patients in primary care, are there any comorbidities that I should be screening for in patients with JIA? Some of it depends on the the type of arthritis, right? So I think, you know, again, the uveitis can be asymptomatic sometimes, um, but as patients, if they're developing loss of sight or if they have, um, they may, um, with some of the vision changes, they may complain about headache, they may complain about photosensitivity. So those are things you can ask about. Asking just in general about morning stiffness, I think is a great thing to, you know, an easy question to ask. It's almost universal that patients with active arthritis have some degree of morning stiffness. And so, you know, five, 10 minutes of morning stiffness, like I'm stiff for a few minutes in the morning when I get up. But, you know, really, if you're getting a story of like 30 minutes or or longer, that's when we should think more about the patient having active arthritis. Other than that, I, you know, there's not a whole lot for um, the non-systemic types of arthritis. With systemic JIA, as I mentioned, those patients can get fevers, they can get a rash that comes and goes, they can look overall inflamed. And so I think just asking about general health for those patients can be can be helpful. Mm-hmm. In, in some autoimmune conditions, we think about them running together or running in families. Do you see mm-hmm. that with JIA? Like, should we be thinking about things like thyroid disease or diabetes? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. So a couple of things that I think worth asking about is GI symptoms. And so celiac disease, you know, arthritis can be a manifestation of that. And then IBD. So we've had patients we've diagnosed with mm-hmm. arthritis who later on get a diagnosis of IBD. And so, you know, looking at the growth chart, as I know you do every time you see them, and if you see any sort mm-hmm. of tapering off, that might be a clue that they have IBD. Certainly not every patient with IBD has overt GI symptoms. And we've picked up a few patients that because they've just started to fall off their growth chart. And so looking at that, Type 1 diabetes does associate with JIA, as does thyroid disease. And so just usual screening for those things, I think, is a great idea. Not necessarily with lab testing, but I think with questions mm-hmm. on history. And as you mentioned, the long-term outlook for patients with JIA has improved over the past few decades with all of the advances within rheumatology. However, we previously thought that children outgrew JIA, and now we understand that some have disease that persists into adulthood. So how can we in primary care help support their care to optimize these kind of long-term outcomes for our patients? One of the things I tell families is that we're really good at knowing when to start medications. We're not very good at knowing when to stop, and there's a lot of research being done on when to stop medications. And sometimes we're able to and patients sometimes will do well and they'll do well without medications and sometimes they their disease comes back. But for those patients who, you know, need to remain on on medications, I think really I think it's just not thinking about them as having, you know, a disability. I think really encouraging them to not use their diagnosis as a as a way to hold them back, but really encouraging them to 
have that same expectation of being able to do all the things that they do. You know, certainly there are patients who were not able to get into remission and then it's a matter of, you know, what level of low disease activity we're willing to tolerate. Mm -hmm. But I think helping patients recognize that this doesn't need to limit them and then that they can do all the things that they need to do. Sometimes, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, that sometimes it's the siblings and that sometimes suffer. And so I think, you know, when, when the attention is focused on the child with the chronic illness. And so I think helping the families uh, learn to manage. We see patients who sometimes can have, you know, psychosocial difficulties coping with chronic illnesses. And so, you know, encouraging good, you know, mental health therapy if that's needed. Sometimes we see patients who develop, you know, when you have a chronic illness, especially one that can cause pain and we can sometimes see pain amplification that develops. And so if you get a, you know, story of a patient that has, is having a lot of pain, is having some psychosocial difficulties, and it's not necessarily their active arthritis, we'll often recommend our treatment paradigm for pain amplification, which is good physical and occupational therapy and mental health therapy. Mm-hmm. Great. I really love that kind of whole body approach that you're using, right? The whole, treating the whole patient Absolutely. and thinking totally. about lifestyle and supporting the family. So thank you so much for teaching us more today about JAA. It's something that I think we learn a lot about in medical school and a little bit in residency, and then we can forget some of these details. And the science has been so rapidly evolving that it's great for you to kind of give us that refresher. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 